Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters. This is episode 74 of the podcast, and so glad you could join me for it. We got a lot to get to today. Of course, we're going to talk a little bit about the NCAA tournament, the regionals being wrapped up, the men's Frozen Four field is set. We will absolutely be talking about that. But we also have a great guest today. I can't wait to bring him on, which I will do in a few minutes. And that's Ryan S. Clark from ESPN, a good friend of mine. He was on the podcast before we were at Flow Hockey. Great to have him back. He's written some really interesting stories that I think will resonate with the prospect audience. And I know uh, he's a college hockey guy as well. So we're going to talk about that and and some of the things that happened. But um, as always, as we get through every single episode, we're going to get through a lot of your questions. I got a ton of great questions for the Q&A after we're done talking with Ryan. There are some really fun kind of topics to to get in there. College hockey, NHL draft, NHL. Um, We're going to go through all of it because I think there were some really great questions and I'm going to answer some of them very quickly and some of them uh, we'll go a little bit deeper on because they they were thought-provoking, and and I like to do that when we do that. So anyway, uh, before I bring on Ryan, I just want to remind you, it, you can always watch this podcast on flowhockey.tv, the Flow Sports app. You can watch on YouTube, and also, of course, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Talking Hockey Sense, of course, is what you want to look for and download, subscribe, rate, review, do all of those things. It really does help us out. And we hope that if you enjoy the podcast, you'll tell a friend about it or let them know where to find it because uh, we're having a lot of fun with this and certainly want you to continue to have fun with us and talk some great hockey. But I'm really excited today because I get to talk to a guy I talk to pretty much every day anyway, but I'm pleased to bring on to the show today my good friend and a fantastic writer, Ryan S. Clark from ESPN. He is joining the Talking Hockey Sense podcast today. Look at that smiling face from from Ryan. And if you're listening, you're not, you can't see it, but you might want to go back and check the video. But Ryan, welcome to Talking Hockey no, you Sense. Don't. Great to have you, buddy. <laughs> likewise, time. likewise. For anyone who's just listening, you do not need to see video. Trust me, it will <laughs> shatter your monitors or your iPhone screens or your Android screens or whatever your method of medium is. And if and if you're already watching, it's too late. So, um, but <laughs> but anyway, this Ryan, is the ring of faces. Like in seven days, yeah. you will get a phone call. <laughs> So, so Ryan, Ryan is on uh, is on the show today and joining us, of course, from ESPN. You may have followed his work at the Athletic as well. He's now a national NHL writer for ESPN, covering some phenomenal stories. We're going to get to those in a second, but before we do that, Ryan's uh, hockey career in, in writing started with the USHL and slightly chilled. And I know that we've talked about this before Ryan I think we even talked about it last time you were on the podcast but I mean to think that here you were covering the Fargo Force it doesn't it, I mean it's it was a while ago it doesn't necessarily feel that long ago you're we covering the Fargo Force for the for the Fargo Forum writing the slightly chilled blog and that's really where you and I connected and met 
And now you are covering the National Hockey League for ESPN. Tell me about your kind of that that journey and, and just what it's been like this year being a national NHL writer at ESPN. And as far as the journey, I don't know if it's different than anyone else's. I mean, yeah, you think like, okay, Fargo was 10 years ago. And it's kind of wild to look at, okay, where you were 10 years ago and where you are now, because to go from that to this is, is totally different, but it's like anyone else. I mean, you literally have an entire podcast dedicated to development and talking about how people get to point A to point B. And I guess you could say it was the same thing with my track in the sense of just, it was covering different things. And as much as you think, you know, hockey, it's also about knowing journalism and what makes for a good story. And how do you turn a good story into a great story? And so, I mean, we won't go through all the, the places I've worked because that would be the entire podcast. But in all seriousness, it's um, it's just been one of those things where you try to, I think, take every situation you've been in, say, what did you learn? Show people that the skills translate to the next level. And then you're fortunate enough to end up in a place like this where it's one of those, you grew up reading something like ESPN and you read it and you go, wow, I would love to work there, but more importantly, like, how do you come up with these ideas and how did you think to talk to this person or what question did they ask to get this answer? And like now to, I guess, be the person who's in that spot. I mean, it, it's, it's a little surreal. Um, so I would say probably that's the best answer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, while I've obviously been able to have a front row seat to your development and watch you kind of rise through the ranks here. And it's been a winding path and a, it includes a lot of different hometowns and a lot of different places along the way. But, you know, now you're at a place where, and one of the things I think is so great about Ryan, and I'm not just saying this because I'm friends with him. I've thought this for a long time is that, you know, you come up with ideas and, and angles that I don't think a lot of us that have specifically covered hockey, um, do and and this strikes this struck me last week and and one of the you know we we were talking and and I wanted to get you on the podcast at some point anyway but you wrote a story that I think really will resonate with this audience in that it was about Tage Thompson from the Buffalo Sabers who is to me one of the most fascinating players in the NHL he's also one of the most fascinating development stories as well and you went really deep you talked to so many different people about Tage Thompson who, you know, and, and really the, the idea kind of started from, hey, this is, he could be the tallest player in the history of the NHL that hit 50 goals and 100 points. But there was also a period of time where people thought this guy is not going to pan out. So, you know, I, my question to you to start this off is what in the reporting of that story really stood out and struck you, especially on kind of some of the development stuff. You talked to former teammates, you talked to his dad, you know, talked to all sorts of different people that have kind of followed his journey. But what really stood out to you as, as some of the things that you think kind of uh, stood out on the development side and just how he was able to blossom into the player that he is today? It's the fact that it's unique because, I mean, every player has their own arc. And with taller players – there are some parts that overlap and then there's parts that are different. And so with Tage Thompson, like a lot of tall players, the suggestion was, hey, do you start off on defense or do you go to goalie? And with him, his dad, who was a defenseman in his career, tried to get him to play defense and then he just wanted the puck too much. So they're like, all right, we'll put you at forward. But aside from that, it's like it's these little things. So when you start talking about players of a certain caliber, I mean, you hear these stories that come out of the woodwork. And with Tage Thompson's, his was 
he was stick handling a Cheerio with a butter knife at dinner when he was like a toddler or around toddler age, which as far fetched as it sounds, it's like, well, that'd be like, I don't know if Kale Makara hypothetically was stick handling with a mini stick on the beaches of Hawaii, which was actually a thing. And I mean, you, you start hearing those sort of ethos stories. Like one of them, when I covered Florida state was uh, Derwin James once ran into like a, a truck and the truck had a dent, but Derwin James didn't have a scratch. It's like this, like Paul Bunyan larger than life, but it, it really did happen. With that said, so you have some of those elements, but also when you talk to people about the height and the size and the strength, it seems like everything sort of had to come together at the right moments because like while he grew, there are parts of this where he grew exponentially. So as he's learning like how to get comfortable with being a certain height, a certain weight, while yes, there was a large growth spurt over time, he could figure out how to do these things. So when he grew again and again and again, it wasn't like he was completely restarting from zero. It was just an incremental growth. Beyond that, it's honestly just kind of looking at how do we view these sort of taller forwards, but also it's another example in the discussion about patience of development, because you and I've talked about this like a lot privately, but you look at this league and the thought is if you're a first rounder, yes, you may not be the finished product at 18, but there's this sense of if you're 21, 22, 23, and you haven't met these benchmarks by the time you get to the NHL, again, if you're a first rounder, there starts to be these questions of like, what went wrong in the development process is all lost. Like, is this person a, a bust? When like you compare that to the average age of a, of a player in another league, if you're a 22 year old in the NFL, at most you're a first year player at minimum, you're a rookie because of the age requirements in the NBA. I mean, you might be a two or three year veteran. You might be a rookie, but there's still this understanding that you're not the finished product. Cause we think about Zion Williamson, like all the talent in the world, but we don't really know what he is yet because of the health issues that he's had, or even someone like Joel Embiid, where like you had the idea Embiid could be good, but once he got healthy, what could he be? And, now we see he's one of the best players in the league with major league baseball. Sure. Yes. You have these players like a Mike Trout, like a Bryce Harper who develop sort of early and become these, these, these stars. But then you have players who develop later in life that you don't know what they're going to be, who turn out to be these all-star players in a sense, kind of like a Joey Votto or, or, or something like that. And so it's just with this sport, it's another example of how it's different with the development model and development art. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are so many, so many things in there that just struck me in the story as well, uh, beyond just the development and also, you know, the marvel that he has become to so many, including, you know, you got on, uh, got, we're able to talk to skating coaches and skills coaches and, and different things and, and how, you know, that's the thing that has struck me this season about Thompson watching him play. It's his movement. It's his agility. It's all these things. And, and, and he's doing it in this six foot seven frame. Which, as you kind of mentioned, like that's Aaron Judge doing, you know, doing this, but on skates, you know, like it's 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 a massive human being doing these things, and that and the fact that you know talking to guys like like uh, Troy Terry and Charlie McAvoy about how you know he was essentially a fifth line player, he was like the last guy on their roster, and you even think back, he was on the 2017 World Junior Team, and that's when you started to see that he was things were starting to click for him then. Um, and, and at UConn and, and different things like that. But 
I, I, th- I thought it was just a really great story. And, and if you haven't read it yet, go over to ESPN.com because Ryan uh, got so many sources on the record to talk about this, like he said, mythic kind of figure. It's it's just amazing to see. And I also love one of the things I really enjoyed that you did was that you got guys like Keith Primo and Jason Arnett to talk to you about being a big guy in the NHL. And even they were kind of blown away by the fact that, hey, this has never happened before. So, I mean, you know, it, it, that that's that's another thing where I was just like, I love that that element of the story. So we don't want to give the whole story away. We want you to go read Ryan's work as well. Uh, but, you know, this was this was a it was a really good um, kind of piece. And, and, and he's a player that I think is a is a lesson. And you, you mentioned, uh, you know, talking to uh, Jack Finley as well and uh, and his you know, he's, he's a big player that was drafted fairly high and, you know, is now still trying to find his way. And, um, you know, now he's got somebody to actually shoot for, which is, which is, which is really neat. So, uh, that's pretty cool as well. Um, before we move on from Tage Thompson, was there anything else, you know, that just over the course of this, working on this and watching Thompson and different things, um, that, that just struck you and just in terms of what he's accomplishing this season? Sure. I mean, it's probably three things. The first is let's go back to what you're saying about Jason Arnett and, and guys like Keith Primo. I mean, we think about what players that size were back then and going throughout all this, you sort of start looking at the numbers and it's like, okay, there've been plenty of examples of players who've been six, two, six, three, six, four that have had these prolific careers that have led the league in scoring or have been near the league leaders in scoring. They've had 50 goal seasons. I mean, they've been hall of famers, of course, like Mary Lemieux, an example of that Joe Thorne's a hall of famer in the making, but at the same time, it's one of those things where you get to six foot five and taller. There's not really a ton of players who've had a lot of prolific success. Like, Matt Sundin's the only player to average one point per game or more being that tall. Blake Wheeler, Matt Sundin, and Jason Arden are the only ones to have more than 900 career points. But even with those three players, you look at something like 6'5", and those are all sort of different quotients. Like you think about Jason Arnett at six foot five, he had over a thousand career penalty minutes. Mm-hmm. You think about Matt Sundin at six five, there's party that's like, Wait, he was 6'5", like you knew he was a sizable presence, but it didn't necessarily strike you at 6'5", kind of like with some people, they're like, wait, Mary Lemieux is 6'4"? It's like, yes, he was really 6'4". He just played at that height, but did it in a way that was different compared to everyone else in that or really any era because he's Mary Lemieux. Whereas if you look at like Blake Wheeler, he's another guy who's 6'5", but he does it so differently with his facilitating. And yes, he can score, but like there's that too. Uh, and then, yeah, I would say the other part too, before we go on to something else is like, it was, it was honestly like talking to people like Finley about like, what is the shared experience of being a taller skater and what are the challenges that, that sort of come with it. And so it was a lot of fun to sit there and pick apart and, and sort of get into the height, the history, the expectations. And also like, does this change the calculus for players at that height? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it certainly changes the way that we view those players as in, in what's possible. Now, Tage Thompson, Tage Thompson may end up being a unicorn, but at least we've seen somebody do it now. And, and you say, okay, well, you know, he's got a, he's got a chance, but another thing just, you know, to, to wrap this up, you know, I think back to when he was at UConn, most of his scoring was on the power play. Still, there were a lot of questions. It's like, he's this big presence, but is there more? And then he continued to grow even while he was in college. And, and that's that, 
just kind of added this other layer. And so now we're seeing patience is important, allowing players to figure out who they are and how they need to play and allowing for that development is so important. And then you might end up with a unicorn like Tage Thompson. And we think back to how the Sabres even got him. He was part of the Ryan O'Reilly trade that everyone hated. And, and now, you know, who, who would you rather have on your team at this stage? And that's why these trades take a long time to, uh, to grade out, but we'll continue to grade them immediately because that's what we do in this industry. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to move on quickly just to talk briefly about this one. Cause I do want to get to the college hockey talk as well with you. Sure. Um, but you had a great story that just dropped today, the day that we're recording this on Michael Buble. Of course, you know, we're talking about a, a world famous pop star, uh, famously Canadian as well, and a huge hockey fan. But he's, what people may not know is that he's a co-owner of the Vancouver Giants in the WHL. And I read that story just kind of smiling the whole time. I was like, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy good Buble music every now and again, but also just to hear how he is as an owner. And so, you know, you had the chance to speak with him. What were some of the, your key takeaways from, you know, having a, a, a famous pop star being a hockey owner at the junior level? Well, I mean, it's wild just because I guess the behind the scenes story, something like that is you're trying to find time to make it work. His team was like, he's going to be in Europe touring. If there's a window, would you be interested? It's like, sure. And they're like, so he's going to be available at 8 a.m. your time, but he's going to be in Cologne, Germany. And so it's just like, all right, cool. So like, he's just hanging out, you know, wearing a Tim Simpson's t-shirt, holding a Patrick Mahomes football, talking about like the, the giants and like, the biggest takeaways were like you talk to the people around him and they're like, yeah, he's very much involved. He's not just some guy who signs checks and then goes and sings around the world, but to talk to him, I mean, like you could tell this is something like really personal to him in the sense of like, he'll have players uh, over his house for bonding sessions. Like when they're between playoff rounds and they'll stay at his rink or like if there's the Christmas party, he's the one who's getting everyone singing these Christmas carols. So he's not the only one singing, although you can't really blame people if they wanted to watch Michael Bublé sing. Yeah, I would say shut up, everybody else. Yeah, just shut up, everybody else. Let Bublé cook. What he does for a living. Exactly. (laughs) But the other thing, too, that was really interesting was the mental health component in this story because he talked a lot about, like, how he himself, including other friends who are entertainers, whether they be musicians or professional athletes, like, there is a lot of strain and stress that comes with always trying to be the best at what you do and performing to these levels that that show why you're revered and how he's tried to take a good chunk of that and impart that onto the players because he's like, look, we know that there are going to be guys who may not ever make the NHL and that's fine, but it's like, are you giving them the skills they think can prepare them for life and help make them better people? And so, yeah, it was just one of those stories where it just sort of ran the gamut on a bunch of different things. And of course, there's, hey, would he ever look at getting into NHL ownership? Because it's a natural question. And he answered that. And of course, well, have you talked to another famous Vancouver resident? And he answered that too. And as for those answers, well, they're on ESPN.com. Because if I don't say that, Chris will, because Chris is the salesman. And I'm just going to be quiet yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was another great story. And I, I think that that's what came across to me is that this is a person that's extremely passionate about this element of their life. Um, clearly it's not his primary profession, but it is a, it is something that he wanted to do and wanted to, to have a, a big hand in. And, and I love that line about, you know, that the stress that comes with always trying to be the best, like he can't have an off day. And then the, the perception 
changes of him if he if he has an off day apparently you know and like people pay money to see you you're expected to perform at a certain level so i thought that was interesting and then just of course you know the element that we're, we're talking about with the potential for ryan reynolds being an, an owner of the ottawa senators um but yeah but that's another one where definitely go read ryan's work because it's it's well worth it but the other reason i brought you on here is because we have been talk, having these conversations for the last several weeks talking college hockey we just completed the NCAA regionals and we are going to kind of get into that a little bit now. Now, if you didn't see the regionals at the, to, to my dear listeners and viewers, um, the first round was insane in all the wrong ways because it seemed like every single game was a blowout. And um, Ryan, who is a main alum, uh, but wasn't there. I, he's, he's not that old that he was, he wasn't there when Paul Korea was there. So he didn't get to experience the level of blowouts that that this, team. This is just um, one hell of a, a way of backing into this subject. You're like, Hey, not that he's that old. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm 38. I graduated yeah, in 06, yeah. but yes. Tell the world how I'm apparently grandpa Clark, please go for it. Jeez. Well, you got to experience Jimmy Howard, right? Or was that even before? Who knows? Anyway. No, no, no. But, Jimmy Howard, Ben Bishop, yeah. uh, Dustin yeah. Penner. Yes. So, Yes. Yeah. So, so you got to experience some of the glory, not really the glory years, but decent years at main hockey, but I'm just using that to spout off your bona fides a little bit as uh, as a guy that, that has been around the college game and even covered uh, levels of the co- of college hockey and while you were in school. Um, but uh, also the fact that, you know, ESPN is the home of the frozen four. It is you, all the games will be on ESPN too. And of course it'll be Boston university versus Minnesota in a great matchup of, of college hockey, blue bloods that should be full of skill and entertaining hockey. And then on the other side, you've got Quinnipiac versus Michigan two disparate styles to incredibly different ways of building college hockey teams. Absolutely fascinating matchups, but Ryan, um, as you kind of followed this college hockey season over the course of the year, um, you know, and now we're down to our final four or the frozen four teams, you know, just what, what, what stands out about, you know, we've got all of these young freshmen that are making huge strides in the game that are, they're among the top scorers in the country. We've got top programs. Um, we've got transfer portal. We've got all these different things. And it, you know, the first round of the, of the tournament was kind of like a, a complete separation from what we had seen all season where there was a lot of parody and a lot of teams beaten up on each other. So just, uh, you know, as you've watched the college hockey season, what has been some of the things that have stood out to you that, that you've kind of gravitated towards as you're looking towards the end of, you know, the, the, the conclusion of this season at the frozen four. It goes back to something I heard when I covered the University of Washington when the athletic director was explaining how they settled on their college basketball coach, well, for the men's team. And it was, do you want a program that has guys that are one and done or maybe two and done, or do you want a program that's three to five-year players? And when you look at the state of college hockey, it seems like that's some of the things that we've seen, and it's reflected into this Frozen Four. And so when you look at, let's say, teams like Michigan, for example, those players stay two, three years, in some cases two of their first-round picks. And just when you think, oh, how are they going to reload? They reload with more first-round picks. We're going to be there through another two-year cycle or maybe three-year cycle, whatever the case might be. Minnesota is a program that's somewhat like that, but they have these ingrained three- to four- to five-year guys. A guy like Ryan Johnson 
comes to mind is another first rounder who's been there all four years. And then when you compare him with these younger players, like a, like a Cooley, like it, it, it really says a lot about like what you're able to do. And then with BU in, in Merrimack, excuse me, Quinnipiac, it's, it's one of those things where what makes Quinnipiac interesting is they are that three to five year school. But then it's like, it's the three to five years, but it's like who they're doing it with. And they have a goalie in any Peretz that you look at him right now and you just can't help but wonder, like, is this someone that teams are going to start looking at? Because as you look into this era of everyone trying to find players on cheap contracts, everyone trying to find the best deal. And when you look at how good the goalies have become in college hockey over the last 20 years and just look at the save percentage and how, like, again, historically speaking, the best save percentages have come in the last 20 years, really the last 10. A goalie like this, you kind of can't help but wonder, like, okay, what's the future look like for him? But then when you look at BU, you know, it's amazing because it felt like a couple of years ago we were looking at BU's program and it was like those teams under David Quinn, you saw the talent. Those teams after David Quinn, you saw the talent, but you didn't necessarily see that final product of what you've come mm. to expect with BU, which is teams that make it beyond day one of, of the NCAA tournament that go deep in the hockey East. Whereas if you look at them now, that's a team that whether they lose in the frozen four or they win the whole thing or lose in the national title game, no option would be surprising because of how competitive the field is. But it's one of those things that helps you sort of come to the narrative of like, is BU getting back to where it needs to be? Because so often we've seen this conversation in college sports, namely with schools like Texas and Miami and football, where after one season, people are saying they're back, they're back, they're back. When it's like, here's the thing about programs like that. It took years, if not decades for them to establish themselves. One year does not mean they're back to being what they are because like, one year is one year, but if it's three years, five years, seven years, that's when you gauge the real, like sort of where things are at. And you just look at BU. It's just, it's a fascinating place at where it stands in terms of what it could be going forward. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, I I think with Jay Pandolfo, first year head coach, but he was an associate coach last year, has NHL experience as both a player and a coach. Um, This is his first head coaching job. And we actually have two first year head coaches at the Frozen Four this year, Brandon Arado from the University of Michigan as well. And I, I wanted to uh, separate Michigan out because I know you've been kind of tracking this team a fair amount. I mean, really, the thing is, is that Michigan has become the team that is very easy to gravitate towards for those of us in the national media because it is this, they have the draft picks, they have the the star power. Um, you know, I know you've been tracking. They're Goliath. And, and, Let's just yeah, say they that. Are, they're Goliath. They, they, they are, but they're still also young. And and so to your point, when you're talking about those three to five-year guys, they're going to go up against a Quinnipiac team that is disciplined, that plays heavy. They did not register a shot on goal in the third period on purpose, did not register a shot on goal in the third period against Ohio State until maybe four minutes left in the period, and then they scored two goals. Like it, that they are a team that waits for you to make mistakes, and Michigan is you know just young enough where maybe – They'll make mistakes, but yes, on a talent basis, they've got multiple first round draft picks. They have the number the number two ranked prospect in the draft. They have a head coach that really allows them to kind of play that open style. And I, I think that is going to be a fascinating matchup, but I know you've kind of been tracking them a little bit as well. 
what do you think is what is it going to take? So Michigan was here last year with Owen Power, Maddie Beneers, Kent Johnson, all of the and, and Nick Blankenberg even who you know they're they're all gone, but now they've got they still have Luke Hughes and Mackie Samuskevich, but then you also add in Rucker McGrory, Adam Fantilli, Gavin Brindley. You know they have uh, Seamus Casey. They have uh, quite a team. So based on what you've seen this year, what have you seen out of that group? Um, what, how, do, how do they take, how do they take that next step? Is, is it possible to take that next step? It seems like it's possible to take that next step, but if you're looking at it in terms of Quinnipiac, it seems like the third period in overtime of Michigan's last game really could be telling in terms of what to expect, which is yeah. you're going to have to play a patient style because I mean, to your point about Quinnipiac, like <clears throat> they literally just sat there and were like, come at us. Like they, they, they literally just sat there and they're like, yo, do you know who we have in that? Like, okay, sure. Go for it. And, 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 and they won, but with Michigan, and, and this is where it's interesting too, because you and I talked about this. Look who's on the other bench. Look who may have coached some of those Michigan players at the world juniors. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so there's, so there's a knowledge of the personnel, but in the sense of Michigan, in some ways, it's about separating the talent, but more about how do you sort of like find the patience to like make this work. And yeah. again, we saw it in, in that last game of the tournament where you saw what Penn State did, which is, you know, I've talked about this year, like for anyone that was surprised by what Penn State did, don't be like Penn State was one yeah. of the few teams this year that hung in with Michigan and Minnesota, like Penn State's no joke. But yeah, at the same time, you're kind, of, in the air. but you're kind of wondering like, yo, is Penn State really about to do this? And then to see what Michigan does in the third period to, to send it to OT and then how quickly they won it in OT, that's where when you look at what they could do in this next game, it's just going to have to be how do you take that talent and all that ability and harness it into patience? Because, like, while, yes, you have all these different things going for you on the other side, you've got an experienced coach, you've got an experienced structure. But more importantly, when you look at how important defense has become in college hockey, and without giving too much away of something I'm working on that Chris knows about, like you talk to different coaches and when it comes to different things, like how much they prepare and even talking to NHL players who played college, they all tell you from forward to defenseman, these coaches spend hours upon hours upon hours on defensive details, more than just here's individual players tendencies, but just in the sense of like, okay, here are the things that a team can do, but more importantly, here are the areas and places within your structure where you have to get better. And there is something to be said for, for as good as Michigan is going up against a team that has a coach and a system and players that have had years to figure out what they do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I cannot wait for that. I think it's going to be a thrilling matchup. Um, we only have a couple more minutes. So I just wanted to ask you quickly, who do you got? Who you got in the Frozen Four? What do you? How do you think these two games are going to go, and who's who's going to be the national champion? Let's start off with Minnesota BU. That one's tough. It, it, I I like I like <laughs> BU a lot. I don't think it's that tough. <laughs> I like BU a great deal, and Drew Camesso can be the kind of goalie that steals it, but. It's hard for me, and I haven't officially – this isn't going to be my official prediction. I still have to flush this out, but I'm telling you, like, it's <laughs> – I, so I have a hard time. 
I do. And part of it is too, there's, there's a lot of injuries on BU right now. Um, like some fair. guys that are banged up, including case McCarthy, who's one of their best, def- best overall defenders. Um, but again, it comes down to Drew Camesso. So yeah, but I, I would say Minnesota, but I, I but it's, it's, I asked you, so. <laughs> we'll lean toward Minnesota with the idea that if BU wins, it wouldn't be surprising. Cause like you said, Camesso has been important to them, but it also goes back to something you and I've been saying a lot to each other this year. Have you watched the Lane Hudson Highland tapes? Right, so. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is ha- Lane Hudson can take a game over and 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 slither his way through everybody, and you never know. But yeah, no, I think that's I think that's very fair. And then I think on the other side too, this to me is the great single game case study of team building in NCAA hockey. That's that's what I mean. It's too small a sample to make any sweeping conclusions. But we're going to make some sweeping conclusions. But I'll leave the floor to you. Quinnipiac versus Michigan, who you got? He's, he's thinking. I'm, I'm going to take Quinnipiac. I really am. Okay. I really okay. am. Just because, just because, like, it wouldn't be a shock if Michigan won. I mean, clearly, we spent a good chunk of this segment talking about how loaded that 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 team is. But just with, with Quinnipiac, it really is this whole idea of, you're looking at three to five year players. You're looking at a defensive structure that works. You're looking at someone, well, you're looking at a head coach and more importantly, a system that as we've seen throughout this season. And again, as we talked about in that last game, they can handle pressure and overloads exceptionally well. So it wouldn't be a shock either way. So again, we'll, we'll go with Quinnipiac with the idea that Michigan wins. It's not a surprise. Cause like if Michigan wins that game, it wouldn't be a stunner to see Michigan win the whole thing. And to just, be honest with you, with these four through, teams, yeah. there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. It's it's such a great field. I think it's awesome. I think that we're in for a tremendous Frozen Four um, after that clunker of a first round. I think that the you know the the next day was better, and then I think even the Frozen Four will be better. Um, these are four of the best teams in the country. They are all deserving of being there, and I can't wait. And you know, Ryan. Um, before we let you go, I just want to give you a chance to, to let people know uh, what to watch out for with you and, and where to follow you at. Sure. Uh, in terms of where to follow, uh, Twitter at Ryan underscore S underscore Clark and then ESPN.com slash NHL, which that's I've still heard that site. weird to say. I, I've heard, yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird to say. But uh, in terms of what to watch out for, let's just say without saying too much, we've got a couple of college hockey stories coming up one is something that you may have noticed in terms of how things have been going the last few years with players of a certain caliber and then the other one is something that is a little bit more long-standing that when you hear it you're like there's no way but then when you sit there and look at why things are the way they are you realize why it's been well three decades since this one thing has happened so hopefully that's like cryptic but descriptive but descriptively (laughs) cryptic so there you go It, it is all of the above Ryan S. Clark from ESPN. Thank you, my friend, for joining us this week. It was a, an absolute pleasure. Um, and I, uh, I I wish you all the best. And I cannot wait to read those cryptic stories that you have just teased on the podcast. So thanks a lot, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. That's Ryan S. Clark from ESPN. And my thanks to my good pal. And again, if you followed the USHL 10 years ago, that slightly chilled blog was one of the best resources for information on the league. And now we're trying to 
kind of recreate that at Flow Hockey with Ryan Sykes and, and what he's doing on our USHL coverage. He's got a great story up about Jacob Fowler from the Youngstown Phantoms, who was committed to Boston College and could be one of the top goaltenders selected in 2023. So make sure you check that out. All right, now is the time in the show where I'm going to turn things over to you, and I promise we will talk more about the Frozen Four next week as we get through. And and since we record on Wednesdays, it'll be kind of brief on the Frozen Four because we don't want it to get too stale. Um, But there are a lot of questions in regards to the Frozen Four and college hockey here that I think will give us an opportunity to to have a great conversation. So um, looking forward to that. And we're going to start it off with our pals from Everything College Hockey because this has actually been a debate about the Hobie Baker Award. And they ask, or they, they actually they don't ask, they just say, talk about how penalty minutes don't and shouldn't factor into the Hobie. Maybe some other players can win the Hockey Humanitarian Award with their flawless character. All right, if you didn't know this, there is a gigantic debate going on about the Hobie Baker Award, which of course goes to the top individual player in college hockey. However, the Hobie criteria also includes, and is it's written into the criteria, that character is part of the process. I have no problem that that's part of the character. However, what I would say is we on the outside, especially in the media, and the Hobie committee includes people in the media, includes former players, it includes coaches, it includes uh, titans of industry, I guess you could say. I mean, it includes a wide array of, of people with differing opinions. And there are also... Um, people on that committee that that are, are very dyed-in-the-wool hockey people and people that aren't. And I think that's actually a good thing to have both of those on there. However, if you've noticed over the years, sometimes the Hobie Baker will go to a player that didn't have the best season compar- comparatively. Um, and that's understandable that not everybody can win, you know, the, you know the, the best player doesn't always get the Heisman, I guess you could say. Typically, that doesn't have. There's not as much debate about who should get the Heisman as there has been about the Hobie Baker. But the reason this comes up is is particularly because Adam Fantilli has had a number of major penalties in games, including a fighting major. Now, here's the thing about that: it's hockey. Things happen. Even the most mild-mannered players can lose it every once in a while. I don't think that speaks to Adam Fantilli's character so much as it speaks to what happened in the moment. And he has had some checks to the head. Logan Cooley, who's a top 10 finalist, also has been ejected from games. I mean, and sportsmanship is part of it, but I don't view that as necessarily is that is, is Adam Fantilli a dirty player? No, I don't think so. Can he play on the edge sometimes? Absolutely. But it's hockey. That's what it, it happens. So to, to the question from our pals at everything college hockey, I I think that character should be considered. However, we are on the outside are not privy to like, I don't know Adam Fantilli personally. I've interviewed him before. I don't know Logan Cooley personally. I've interviewed him many times before. That's the same of a lot of these players. Some of these players I haven't talked to before. And I know that's true of people on the committee. They don't know these players that well. So I think it's very difficult. And and when you, when you allow character and different kind of terms like that, you're adding a lot more subjective elements and you're also allowing for bias. One of the things that I was talking to somebody that was on the Hobie committee um, earlier, and I was just saying, you know, the Hobie committee has a responsibility. Like the Hobie Baker is probably more well-known than who won the national championship in a given year. Everybody in hockey knows what the Hobie Baker is. And every, they know a lot of the winners. They know Paul Correa. They know Jack Eichel. They know Johnny Goudreau. You know, they know the players that that have won this and it has become a big thing. So 
when you're on that Hobie committee, you are a steward for the, the history of the game. You are trying to kind of distill that season. And when you don't give the award to the best player, and if you are using things like character to degrade a player's candidacy, unless that player has done something that we know for a fact has happened, uh, or that we also are, are certain that there are things that they have done that you would not want to bestow an award on that player, then by all means, let it be a guardrail. It should not be the primary criteria for this award because it's far too subjective. And in the end, that's where we start seeing them make decisions that don't make a whole lot of sense. So I felt like we needed to break that down a little more. And and I will be writing about this. We'll see how the award goes. Um, As we record this, this is on Wednesday. The Hobie hat trick will be out the following Thursday. We will cover that in our next podcast. And I'll give you some thoughts on who I think should win the Hobie. Um, But, you know, you have to, I, I think that when we say, well, yes, character is important. Absolutely it is. But we human beings are not the best judges of character. I'm, we, are, we, we try as much as we can, but there are so many things that we don't know. And when we put in some of those subjective kind of terms and different criteria, it doesn't really help us make those good decisions. All right. Great question. Thank you for including that and allowing me to get on my soapbox for a minute. Character counts, but it shouldn't be everything, especially on this award. And also we don't all need to get on board with that. So anyway, I got a great question. Um, from Aaron. And this is another thing that we've talked about a lot. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one, but I did want to get to it. And Aaron writes, there's a lot of chatter about top seeds hosting NCAA regionals thoughts on adding the playoff atmosphere, adding that playoff atmosphere for top teams. I am, I am definitely for this process of bringing campus regionals back or, or bringing them to men's college hockey. They do it in women's basketball to great success. Um, I think it does a, it accomplishes a couple of goals. The first goal being that it incentivizes top teams to be top teams. You get a chance to win home ice in the first round of the NCAA tournament. This is exactly why coaches around the country do not want that because that means four teams will have that advantage and only four teams get that advantage, whereas you play in a, a, an independent regional. But what did we see in regionals? With the exception of Allentown for the final game where they sold out Allentown for Penn State versus Michigan, you're playing in a lot of low quality atmospheres that don't have a lot of pop that players. It's not a a great experience for the players who are used to playing in more raucous environments. You know, if Michigan was playing in Yost arena, that's a big thing. The one question I have is how much will those sites support the other regional games? You want to make sure that you're having a good experience. You want to have atmosphere for all of the games, not just one or a few of the games, but that's kind of where we're at right now. So I'm for it. I think it incentivizes good teams to be better. I think it, you know, I think that it it creates atmosphere. One of the best things about college hockey is atmosphere. And for the most important weekend of the season, we strip that away. And, and I understand why, but I would definitely move on from that. So I don't love that very much, but this next, uh, we're, we're going to move on from now. I think it's a great question. I think it, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, but I, I, I would love to see that. This is a great question from Max. I really like this one a lot um, because it goes into a number of things. And I, I, I'm i not, I'll answer a couple of them quickly, but the first one is really intriguing to me. Max writes, assuming every coaching job was open, what are the, fo- the top five most attractive coaching locations 
how many prospects recruits is too many with the transfer portal rules and pros and cons expanding of the playoffs and should the frozen four be reseeded i'm going to start with the last one first i don't think the frozen four should be reseeded i like the bracket format i like having brackets that you can kind of cleanly fill out it, it drives fan interest. It also drives, you know, uh, other opportunities to, you know, kind of have these bracket challenges and different things like that. Um, I think that that's, it's a fair question. They started reseeding teams in the world juniors. And I think that that was a very good thing for a small, short tournament like that. I think we have so much of the season that we don't necessarily need to reseed. I don't think we should be expanding the NCAA tournament. Um, I think we just saw a first round that would make us laugh at that idea. Not, not, not that it's a bad question because I think in years past we could say, Hey, there's at least 20 to 20, you know, 24 teams that, that should be part of this. Um, I could see a potential play in scenario um, making like some of the, the, the automatic bids that got in, have a play into the national championship tournament. Maybe that's one way to expand the field. So that's question number three. Um, and then uh, number two, you know, I just think the transfer portal is here to stay. We're going to get a couple more questions about the portal. So I'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to go on number one. And the question was about assuming every job is open. What are the top five most attractive coaching locations? And I thought about this for a while, but I think you're probably going to say, well, that's really obvious. Um, in terms of the top coaching locations, I think the top two jobs in America right now is Minnesota and Michigan. I think those are the two best places. Michigan's currently in an interim head coaching situation with Brandon Arado. I'm sure they're going to rip that tag right off of him uh, as he got a team to the Frozen Four. But I think in terms of facilities, in terms of cultural importance, um, you know, that's why you know Minnesota would be number one because I think that that's you're you're in a state that's hockey mad. You're a cultural touchstone for your state and the hockey community. It is a very demanding job. It is a very difficult job. There is a lot of people that you know kind of have their hands hands in on that. But I do think that you know when you are the head coach of the Minnesota of the University of Minnesota, you're getting top recruits. You've got the lar- one of the largest pools of in-state pools to pull from of players. You have players that grew up wanting to play for you. Um, you know, they're starting to make some renovations at Mariucci. They're bringing the ice in a little bit. Um, so there are a lot of things happening. I think that's the number one job. Michigan is right up there. We're talking about established tradition. We're talking about, you know, the great facilities in Yost Ice Arena, one of the historically great barns in college hockey. Um, you know, the, the support of a Big Ten administration, just as there is in Minnesota. That means money. That means revenue. There's all these different things. You got great fan support. So I think those two are tops. Then I go to both Boston College and Boston University. Same kind of difference. Those two are the two of the most important teams on their respective campuses, especially at BU. You've got great facilities. You've got players from a from a large in-state situation there where you're getting players and then you're also You've got that track record of NHL coaching um, and NHL players that have come there. So that established tradition really allows you to recruit. And now both of those schools had coaches there for forever. Jack Parker, Jerry York. They're now on uh, BU's on their second coach since Jerry York with Jay Pandolfo. And Greg Brown took over for Jerry York this year. So fascinating to see how those programs uh, develop. Getting to the fifth one was a lot harder, but to me, they're, they're, these two are close, but North Dakota is number five for me. And you could even make a case that it's number three, but I think that the difference between North Dakota and, and the Boston schools, some of it is is from the, the player the player pool that they have to select from is a little different because recruiting to the city of Boston is a lot different than trying to recruit to Grand Forks, North Dakota. And that's not to disparage Grand Forks, North Dakota, because it's just, 
it's it uh, you know boston has a lot of different things big city feel some players want that some players are from that grand forks is you know a little bit but what you get when you're at the university of north dakota you are the show everything is about hockey there it is the pro team of north dakota it is it has the best fan support of any and part of that is that is a tough coaching job because Having great fan support also means a lot of pressure. There is a lot of pressure on you to perform. And there is a lot of people that will get impatient. And when you don't perform, you will get pressure and could potentially lose your job. But they've their coaches have typically had great job security. Security. Brad Berry has had a national championship there. You have one of the crown jewel arenas in all of college sports at Ralph Engelstad Arena. There are so many advantages there. And then obviously there's the tradition. There's the the top players that are coming there. Um, and then the, the the school that is just on the outside is Wisconsin. And it just so happens that that job is open. I will be fascinated to see who gets it. We will probably talk about that more next week because more coaches are available for the University of Wisconsin to talk to. So I think that's another one that's up there. All right. Our next question comes from uh, Lewis or Louie. And he asks, uh, is the year is is the year the Bobcat is this the year the Bobcats finally win it? You know what? This is maybe one of their best opportunities to win it, and and the reason being they have that great mix of experience. They have the goaltending, they have the coaching, they have the discipline. They also have a player in Colin Graff who is a high end scorer who has definitely taken things to another level. They have a defensive group that is incredibly uh, deep and experienced. Zach Metza came back for a fifth year. Um, even though there were NHL teams that were ready to sign him, he comes back and he says, I'm, I'm going back, I'm going to school, and I want to I want to make this work. I want to try to bring a national title. Quinnipiac has been to the, the, the dance three times, and, and they've, they this will be their third time into the Frozen Four. They've gone to the national championship game each of the last two times. They lost in those situations. So um, it's, it's, it's amazing to me what Rand Pecknold has done at that program and continues to be a, a tremendously competitive program. So this year they have a great chance. The different, the, the only thing standing in their way is that all three other teams in this thing are so elite in terms of their skill level, their ability to score. They have goaltending as well that, you know, there, it is going to be a challenge. It is very hard to, to win these games. And they got to win a lot of, you know, they've, they've, they've won a lot of them this year, but these are going to be the, these last two are going to be the hardest. So uh, it is definitely possible. So good question. We'll see if if the Bobcats can pull it off for you. Uh, Next question comes from our good pal, Craig Morgan. And he asks uh, a very intriguing question. Is it possible or likely that Jimmy Snuggerud, Matthew Nyes and Logan Cooley all return to the university of Minnesota next season? I believe that in the case of Jimmy Snuggerud, I would be more surprised if he signed an NHL contract than if he uh, returned. I think he will return to the University of Minnesota next year. The St. Louis Blues have very little need to rush him. I believe that there is talk already from their side that, hey, maybe it would be better for him to spend another year in school and arrive ready to play for us the following year. A lot of players have taken that extra year. Um, There aren't as many one-and-dones anymore. Uh, I think Matthew Nyes is as good as gone. I believe he will sign with Toronto very quickly. Um, as soon as the season is over, I believe the Maple Leafs would like to potentially have him as an option for their lineup. If he's unable to play games in the regular season before the playoffs, that might be a little bit more difficult for them to feel comfortable inserting a rookie into the Stanley Cup playoffs. But I do believe that the spot is available for him and that he would potentially have an opportunity there. And so that's why I think he very likely could sign 
as soon as his season is over with Minnesota. Logan Cooley, who I'm sure Craig is most interested in because he covers the Arizona Coyotes. And now, of course, Matthew Nyes is also from Arizona, where Craig currently resides. But Cooley is the unique one. I don't know. Um, I think he, he very well could go. And we have a question. Our next question is actually about that. And I'll, you know, Nico, I'll have you pull that one up because uh, we'll, we'll get into that discussion as well. And it says, has Logan Cooley's second half of the season made you think he's ready in the fall? And thanks, Luke, for that question. So folding that into the question that Craig asked, I, as, as good as Logan Cooley is, and as amazing as he has been, especially in the second half of this season, I still think there are areas of his game that he could potentially work on. I'm not saying that he's not ready. I think he could go to the NHL or maybe spend some time in the AHL and become a professional. Um, but I don't necessarily know if it does him or the Coyotes any good to rush him into a situation where the team isn't especially competitive, where you're kind of getting your head beat in a little bit more with every with all the losses. And so I think that he is definitely going to have to be the guy that, you know, makes that decision himself. If he feels ready, he's going to go. Um, but I would not be altogether surprised if he did decide to stay at Minnesota for another year. He is one of Minnesota's highest scoring freshmen in the history of their program. I think only Neil Broughton, who is, uh, you know, a, a legend of, of us hockey. I think he's the only one that has outscored Cooley at this point in the record books. And, He's remarkably skilled, a tremendous skater. And as Bob Motzko told me on uh, on a teleconference yesterday, he's such a competitor and almost too much. We talked about the fact that he, he had a couple game ejections, majors, had to sit out some games. Um, you know, he is he is an ultimate competitor. And so um, I think that the second half has given both him and the Coyotes a lot more to think about in terms of where he is. But I do think that there are things that he could continue to work on and excel in, and maybe an extra year of college wouldn't hurt him. Um. The next one came via DM, so we aren't going to put it up on the screen, but I just want to quickly get this. Hi, Chris. Love the pod. Thank you very much. Can you go over what's happening with Mason Lorai uh, after the OSU loss? Is he headed to Boston or Providence? Is he ready for the NHL or AHL? Well, Mason Lorai had a tremendous season for Ohio State. He's had a great development arc going back to his USHL days. He's a second-round draft pick. I remember on draft day, I felt like, man, that's a bit of a reach, but you understand why a team would draft a guy with his size, his mobility, and his offensive capabilities i think that he played some of his best hockey this year i think he is one of those guys that can go any which way i do believe boston will end up signing him i think he'll probably end up playing in the ahl and probably will be in the ahl for some time so that's kind of up to lori at that point does he want to you know spend multiple years in the ahl or does he maybe want to go back for another year at osu get a little bit more development get a little bit stronger um, and then maybe move on. But I, I think that that decision will be coming very, very soon. Um, and we'll see where that all ends up. But he is a remarkable talent. Um, I think that he is much better than I gave him credit for when I in his draft year. And his continued development is a huge credit to Steve Rollock and the staff at Ohio State because I think that we're starting to see him play a little bit more of a detailed game, which was always among my concerns for such a big player. Our next one comes from a regular on the pod, Jonathan. He asks for thoughts on the recent Red Wings signings of Carter Mazur, Marco Casper, the projection on NHL impact and timetable. Thank you. Well, thank you for the question, Jonathan. And I would say, uh, again, just going to answer this really quickly. I think Marco Casper will spend uh, at least a season or at least a portion of next season in the AHL. I think he's very close to NHL ready. He's in highly intelligent, highly competitive center. I think he will be the long-term number two center for 
the Red Wings, maybe developing into a number one center. But I believe very strongly that he is going to be a, a significant presence on that team for years to come. My respect for his game has only grown since he's gone back to Rogla and 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 competed at the level that he did. Um, his season ends, and now he's able to come to North America and get a taste of everything here. And we'll see where it goes from there. But I think Marco Casper will make a big impact. Carter Mazur, what a tremendous development story. He grew up a, a Detroit Red Wings fan. He was not drafted in his first year of eligibility. He stuck with it, got drafted out of Tri-City, was a tremendous USHL player, and then had two, two great seasons at Denver. He's a high-end goal scorer. He uh, he's gritty. He gets in at, after plays. I think he will probably you know be an energy kind of type player at the NHL level. Maybe he has a chance to touch twenty goals. Maybe down the road. Um, but I, I think that he's kind of a, a, a guy that'll be more of a secondary scoring option for the team. Uh, but I think both of those guys, you know, I think Mazer in particular probably will spend some time in Detroit or in uh, Grand Rapids. Detroit is a team that does not rush their prospects. I don't think they will rush him. I don't think they'll rush Marco Casper. Um, they've done a really tremendous patient job with guys like Sebastian Cosa, Simon Edvinson, um, you know, more Sider as well. Uh, I think that they'll take their time a little bit, but I could, I, I would, I, I'd be, would not be surprised to see Casper at least get some NHL time next season. All right. Our next question is a little bit looking out into the future of college hockey to next season. And this one comes from Daniel. Daniel asks a very good question. What sort of impact do you think Macklin Celebrini will have in college next year when you can, when you compare him to other high-end draft eligible players like Eichel, Beniers, and Fantilli? So, yeah, we've had a tremendous run of high-end NHL draft prospects play their draft year in college hockey. Now, Macklin Celebrini will be entering BU a year early. So next year he would would have been his senior year of high school. It is going to be his uh, freshman year. He's going to play as a 17-year-old in college hockey. Um, that is, that is a very difficult thing to do. We saw Matthew Wood do that very thing with UConn this year. He will be a first round draft pick, uh, but Matthew Wood, very big, you know, Celebrini doesn't have necessarily the size and strength, but I'll tell you what, after watching him this season and watching what he has done at the USHL level, this is a player that is going to make an immediate impact in the, in, in the NCAA. This is a guy that is going to go very high in his draft year. He's an incredibly intelligent, incredibly competitive player. He has been pushed around in games where, where teams try to push him around and he does not back down from anything. It'll be the same thing in college. It's just going to be that much faster and tougher. I think we're looking at the next great impact freshman in college hockey. I think BU will have one of the best teams in college hockey next year because I do believe Lane Hudson will be back next year. Uh, they might have to address their goaltending a little bit more, but they have some a number of high-end prospects coming in. Um, uh, including a number of USHL superstars that will really help fill out with alongside Celebrini. So I think we're looking at a player that's going to make a significant impact, perhaps at, at, at a level comparable to, maybe not surpassing, but a level comparable to what we saw Adam Fantilli do this season, just because I think that at the same, and Celebrini will be entering essentially a year later or a year earlier than Fantilli did because Fantilli's a late birth date, which is why he's in college now. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating. I cannot wait to see it. I think Celebrini is a very special player. All right. Our next question comes from Jake and he is asking, what do you think about Yaniv Peretz in terms of pro potential? So 
Yaniv Peretz is, of course, the goaltender for Quinnipiac. Uh, and I know I'm not always pronouncing that properly. I've watched the pronunciation video of the school's name so many times, and I just can't seem to do it. I'm trying. I promise, Bobcats fans, you've been a very relevant national uh, power, and I should be better, and I will keep trying. But in terms of Yaniv Peretz on an NHL or pro standpoint, very difficult to answer. He, you know, I think that he more likely than not would not get an, would get probably an AHL deal similar to what we saw. Dryden McKay won the Hobie Baker last year. He was a bit of an undersized goalie and he was a goalie that didn't play a ton or didn't face a ton of shots. A lot of people labeled him as a system goaltender. Um, and, you know, it's taken him some time to find his footing as a pro. He's played in the ECHL and the AHL this year. I think that's kind of the future for Yaniv Peretz at least at the outset. Um, I do think that what we've seen from him, he's got, you know, he's got 10 shutouts this year. He's second in the country in save percentage. He's first in the country in goals against average. Um, you know, he's first in winning percentage and wins, you know, which is a team stat, but still notable. Um, you know, I think that Peretz has, has the potential to be a, an NHL caliber goalie. It's just going to take, I, I'm going to need to see it, him do it at the AHL level. Uh, before I can feel more comfortable projecting him because he doesn't have the prototypical NHL size. He does play on a team that is typically a lot stingier, but if you watch them play against Ohio state, he was outstanding. He faced a lot of shots and he was very good at turning those aside. Um, So I think that it's just, for me, it's a matter of, I need to see it at a different level before I can really put a stamp on him. And I think that that's what a lot of teams would would agree with as well, is that we're seeing a lot of players sign AHL only contracts first or AHL two ways. And, uh, and, and that's probably the path forward for him. All right. Our next question comes from Scotty Waz and Scotty asks, is the transfer portal as big of a game changer, positive or negative and negative for schools as some fans perceive it to be? Really good question, Scotty. I think that it is it, it is a significant component of a college season anymore. The 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 uh, the the transfer portal we've seen dozens and dozens of players enter since they were eligible to do so. Um, you know, Northeastern saw a, a great many of their players either sign professional contracts or move into the transfer portal. That changes the dynamic of their team for next season. Um, you know, there are other players in the. Uh, in other schools, you know, that are, that are getting a chance to move. Um, if they're maybe at a big school, they move down to a smaller school. And now Atlantic hockey schools are, are reaping the benefits of players that have played higher level hockey. Now they come down and they have a better opportunity um, in, in Atlantic hockey. So I do think it is a significant change. Um, we have free agency in college hockey. There is a lot of NHL draft picks in the transfer portal right now that have college hockey experience that have been good players in college hockey. And I think that that's, it, to me, it is a, a massive game changer. I am pro transfer portal. I am pro the ability of players to to, to move about. Um, I think that other teams are also using the transfer portal, suggesting that some players go into the transfer portal. So it's giving guys second chances, or you know, it's it's the narrative that they're just running away from challenges isn't always the case. Sometimes it's not the right fit. Sometimes the school doesn't have the major that they need. Sometimes they just it's not a fit with the coaching staff. It, you know, there are some players that can that absolutely will benefit from sticking it out and fighting through adversity, but that's not everybody's situation. So a very good question, but I think that, you know, the, the transfer portal will continue to be a, a major thing. And we've got another 
transfer portal question. I'm, I'm running short on time, so I just want to going to do a very blitz through uh, some of these. And this one comes from Riker, and he asks, "Where do you think Jack Hughes transfers? Like, where do you see the best fit?" And how worried are you about his development after a bad sophomore season? Anyways, thanks as always. Well, thanks, Riker. You know, I'm not, you know, Jack Hughes, uh, who is not the Jack Hughes that plays for the New Jersey Devils, but played at Northeastern last year. He is one of the players in the transfer portal. Los Angeles Kings draft pick. Um, to be frank, I'm fairly concerned with the way his, his development arc. Um, he was one of the best American players in his age group at 16 years old. Everybody kind of caught up. He got hurt. He lost a lot of development time. And I feel like that has knocked him off his course. Um, He has not scored at a very high level in college hockey. He's an incredibly skilled, intelligent player. It just hasn't translated. Um, In terms of where he goes next, I've been hearing that there's a potential that he could go to one of the Big Ten schools. I'm not entirely sure which one, but that's been kind of the, the, the talk of late. And he's a highly skilled player that needs to be play with skill. Um, And, he was allowed to do that at Northeastern. It just didn't click. And so uh, some, some definite concerns there. Uh, but, but, you know, I think still a guy that, that has plenty of time to get things figured out. All right. Our next question comes from my pal, Darian Summers. And he says, Chris, first time, long time. What is your take on the Penn, the state of Penn state men's hockey team? How far close are they from not just a frozen four, but frozen fours? Boy, did they get ever close this year. A goal away from going to their first Frozen Four. I think they're very close. The thing that I think is preventing Penn State from taking that next step, they have a great system. They play with great structure. They do a lot of things ex- extremely well. Um, but they do not, uh, you know, they're, they, they, they haven't been able to take that next step. Um, I think one thing that I would very much like to see Penn State starting to play a much more difficult non-conference schedule. I think that will help their players when they get to the tournament stages. That they they have a very Atlantic hockey heavy um, uh, schedule in in non-conference play. I'd like to see them start playing some more of the Blue Bloods. I think it'll help their players get better, um, and I think it'll be, come in handy later in the season. I also think at some point they're going to need that big player that, that either arrives ready to make an impact or they can develop into making an impact. And that will help them go a lot further. Um, the next question I have, uh, it came from Matt and this is something I, I think I'll actually, I'll be ending on this one where we'll, we'll talk more. Well, we got a few more questions. Um, that, that are on here. I promise I'll get to them next week. I apologize for not getting to them today, but we're going to end on this one because it is something I am extremely excited about. It's something that I just wrote about as well. Um, and Matt asks thoughts on Annalise Bergman's story with the Janesville Jets. Great to see her, Nella Lepusinova, and others really forcing their way into higher and higher levels. Well, Matt, thank you very much for the question. And Annalise Bergman, if you did not hear, is about to make history. On April 7th, she will start a game for the Janesville Jets in the North American Hockey League. That will be the first time in the history of Tier 1 and Tier 2 Junior A hockey in the United States that a woman will play for a team. The NHL has produced a number of high-quality NHL players. Connor Hellebuck, probably among the most famous of their alumni, though there are far more than just him. Um, And Bergman will play... Uh, in this game with Janesville. She's played with boys throughout her entire career. She played for the Oakland Junior Grizzlies in, in Michigan. So we're talking Michigan AAA hockey, which is among the top levels of, of U18 hockey you can play in the United States. And she was a starting goalie there and put up very good numbers. Uh, throughout her career, she has played with and against boys. In fact, as a 12U, this is an amazing thing that I, I learned while researching a story that you can read on flowhockey.tv. 
um, she played on the same 12U team as Connor Bedard at the World Slucks Invitational. That's where they bring a lot of players, top players in certain age groups together. And she was on the same roster as Connor Bedard. Um, she's a two-time medalist at the Under-18 World Championship with Team USA. She's committed to play women's hockey at Cornell University. And I actually got a text from uh, somebody that's involved in hockey who, who said, you know, I've coached her before. Uh, we took her to a tournament overseas with a bunch of boys. She was the best player on the team. There was a, a parent that was like, hey, why aren't we playing the other the, the boy goalie? And he said, are you kidding? It's because she is the best goalie that we have, and she ended up being the best player on their team. So make no mistake. Yes, people will say, oh, stunt or, you know, you know, just, just trying to get attention. Make no mistake. Annalise Bergman earned this opportunity. <coughs> Excuse me. Earned this opportunity. She is talented enough to be there. She is one of the top goaltenders in her age group and very clearly is on an Olympic track for her career. She is a six foot one, almost six foot one goaltender, um, which among women goalies is a giant. Um, it's, it's a little bit below size for NHL, what the NHL is seeking. But this is what we're talking This is a woman that is about to make history and deserves every bit of this opportunity. She went to Janesville's training camp in the summer on an invite, was one of the best players in that camp. It turned, you know, she's 17. So that's, a, it's very, any 17 year old goalie is going to have a hard time transitioning to junior hockey. So she went back, played with her U18 AAA team. That season was over. It created an opportunity and an opening for her to play for Janesville. And now she'll play on April 7th. You can watch that game on hockey TV, which of course is a flow sports subsidiary. So make sure you are checking out hockey TV, Janesville Jets versus Springfield Junior Blues on April 7th. Annalise Bergman making history. Do not miss that. We will be covering it extensively. We'll talk about it more. I hope to get Annalise on this podcast because I can't wait to, to hear about what this experience was like for her. So we'll try to work on that as well. But that is a great place to end it. We will talk much more about the NCAA Frozen Four next week. We will have plenty more to talk about on the NHL draft front in the coming weeks. And I cannot wait to talk more hockey with you next time around. Thanks to everybody for your questions. Huge thanks to Ryan Clark for being on the podcast today. A huge thanks to Nico Renna, my esteemed producer, and uh, really appreciate his work on the podcast this week. And to all of you that ask questions and to every single one of you that has ever listened to this podcast, I thank you so much for your support and for your conversation. We are going to be back next week with so much more. That's going to do it for now. My name is Chris Peters. This is Talking Hockey Sense. We'll catch you next time.